Excitement with you this morning. Be turning to the third chapter of 2 Timothy. It's going to be our text this morning. We're glad that you're here. A number of visitors are with us today. We're glad that you've come to be part of this worship assembly with us. Hope that you can come back this afternoon at 5 o'clock and participate in our Bible classes with us. We're living in some very challenging times morally and spiritually. In fact, we're we're living in in an age right now where it seems that no one knows what's true anymore. You get one news broadcast, you get another news broadcast, you see one commentator, you listen to another commentator... They're all talking about the same event or the same occurrence, but totally different narratives coming from them. It seems everybody has his own agenda. It seems that the whole world uh, has gone mad in seeking after power and dominance and fame and fortune, and there's money and greed behind everything. And we wonder, has it ever been? That life has been like this? And the answer is yes, of course. The first century Greco-Roman world into which the gospel was first proclaimed was a world very much like this. And so the apostle Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus and he's struggling mightily with the situation that is before him, He's trying to help Timothy understand, what do you do? How do you respond? How is a Christian supposed to react to a world that seemingly has lost its mind? Nobody knows what is true. Nobody, Nobody seems to care what is right. Everybody's in this for himself. There's always an ulterior motive for everything that's going on. What are we supposed to do? So the third chapter of 2 Timothy is an acknowledgement of the Apostle Paul that, yes, things are as they are. You're facing times of stress. There are very evil people in the world in which we live. It is possible to stand firm in the faith. And you need to know that the key to all of this is Scripture, which is the God-breathed revelation that we have. And so, if you didn't have time to copy down all four of these, you're going to see them again just just now. In verses 1 and 2, Paul told Timothy, "We're, we're facing times of stress. Know this, he said, that in the last days, grievous times shall come. Perilous times shall come. Dangerous times shall come. Difficult times shall come. It's it's an interesting word, these grievous times, this stress that we're living under. There's only one other occasion in the New Testament that I know of where this particular word is used. And it's used to describe two demoniacs who were so outrageous in their behavior that the text says it was impossible to pass through the country that way because of the fierceness of these wild men who were possessed 
by demons. That's the word that is used here. Uh, describing the times in which we live. They are stressful. They are difficult. They are hard. They are dangerous and perilous. Four things I want to say to you about the last day. Somebody said, well, I'll tell you right now. I think when, when I read this, men shall be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, haughty, railers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and holy, without natural affection, implacable slanderers, no self-control, fierce, no lovers of good, traitors, headstrong, puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Somebody said, I'll tell you, I I think we now are living in the last days. I'll let you in on a clue. We've been in the last days now for about 2,000 years. Because the last days, as the expression is used here, I believe, refers to that period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ. These are the last days, and they're hard times. Four things you need to know about that. Number one, we're there. These are the days in which men who are estranged from God and rebellion against God, men are evil. It involves, secondly, these days will involve a great deal of difficulty, hardship, and stress. They are ugly days. Thirdly, the ugliness of these days is not because we're in the middle of a drought and everything is is drying up or there's been a great hurricane and, and, and there's just floods of water everywhere. We are in difficult and evil days because of evil people. And finally, we should remember that Paul said, We need to understand this, and we need to be prepared for it. We need to get ready for it, and Timothy needed to be ready for it. And so Paul begins to describe the evil evil, uh, nature of, of humanity in that day. Their moral conduct was abysmal. They were lovers of self. The first century world, especially in the upper echelon, was characterized by narcissism. We see a little bit of that today, don't we? People who just are in love with themselves. Someone says, I'm not sure what narcissism is, this self-love. Just two words for you. Facebook selfies. That's enough, right? Self-love. People who are in love with themselves. People who are lovers of money. That is... a period of time in which every single decision they make is money-driven. Are you going to get married? How's that going to affect me financially? Are, are you going to have children? What's the financial impact? Are, are you going to serve God? How's it going to affect my job? Will I still be able to do this? Will I be able to make money? Will I be able to work in this position that I'm holding now? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They were hedonistic. They were living for fun, for the sensual pleasures of life. I want to tell you, if you know anything about marketing today, you understand that at least on television and the visual marketing that is done, one of the things that our culture very much understands is that we are a people who are addicted to sensual pleasures. We are addicted to sensual pleasures, and I'm saying to you, that's been around for a long time. 
But I, I do want you to know something. These people were not irreligious. They were still doing church. They, they were still going through the motions. They were, uh, uh, religion was big business in the first century. It was huge business in the first century. And the danger is that these pagans who are coming out of idolatry were going to bring that same mentality with them into the church. Holding a form of religion but denying the power thereof. Oh, they, were, they sounded religious. They talked religious. Uh, they showed up at religious gatherings. But they didn't have a clue about the nature and the character of God or the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their lives reflected that. It's not the first time. And the days of Isaiah, as Isaiah opens his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord is lamenting the fact that you lift up your hands and prayer, hands that are covered with blood. It's still going to temple, still offering the sacrifice in the days and the post-captivity period, the days of Malachi. Malachi, uh, as he is recording the complaint of God. God's complaint was, you are coming to worship me. You're coming to engage in this religious activity. You're bringing these sacrifices, sacrifices, the, the lame, the blind, the blemished, the animals that nobody wants. That's what you're giving me? You're calling it sacrifice? You're coming and you're acknowledging me as your God and then you're leaving and you're living your life as if you never knew me. God said, I wish somebody would lock the doors. I wish somebody would lock the doors and stop this. These people, this, these people who were evil people many times were religious people. And I'm saying to you that religion and morality through the centuries have more often been divorced than married. And then they were out making proselytes, because let me tell you, they were saying the things that people wanted to hear. And, and Paul is going to deal with this again immediately in chapter 4, when he's encouraging Timothy, well, I, I know that having itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust, but you, Timothy, preach the word. The evil men are described. Now, he's encouraging him, beginning in verse 10, you need to stand firm in the faith. Men will be, uh, he said in verse 2, you should know this, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, haughty. Okay, now he said in verse 10, but you, Timothy, but as for you, and he's going to say it again in verse 14. But you, Timothy, but as for you, but abide you in these things. As for you. And he's showing the contrast here. He's saying, Timothy, you're different from these people. Your life is different. You're called to be different. Look at my life, Paul said. In verse 10, you followed my teaching. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my long... Paul said, Timothy, your life is different. You are, 
Uh, you are a stark contrast to the life of this evil man who's in this for himself. He's driven by his own passions, by his own greed, by his own lust for power and domination over other people. You have learned the scriptures from me. You have followed my teaching. You have followed my example. You followed my way of life, my conduct. And Paul said, and you well remember how well that served me at times. I was beaten. I was flogged. I, I was imprisoned. I was, I was a day and a night in the sea. I, I was treated in horrendous ways from this. I suffered for this. But you, Timothy, verse 14, you abide in what you've learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. He learned them from Paul and not just from Paul. And that from a babe you have known the sacred writings that are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From a babe, Lois, his grandmother, and Eunice, his mother, had taught him the scriptures. You have known the sacred writings. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's what inspiration means. We learn two things about inspiration in these verses, about Scripture in these verses. We learn where it comes from. All Scripture is God-breathed. And we learn its objective, what it's intended for. To make the man, the woman of God, a complete, thoroughly equipped disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The inspiration of the Bible, the Christian's view of Scripture includes all three of these elements, the idea of revelation, inspiration, and authority. When we think about revelation, there are two ways that God has revealed Himself to us. People say, well, I, I, just, I love to go to the mountains, and, and I love to stand and just look across the way, and I see those rolling hills and mountains, and I am just, I am filled with, the, with an awe of the power and the majesty of God. Two things I want to say to you about that. Number one, that's exactly what you ought to be filled with. A sense of awe for the power and the majesty of your God. It's one of the explicit purposes for which God gave you this creation. So that you could see His everlasting power and divinity. But I remind you of this, you can stand there all day in awe of the power of God without understanding what it is God wants you to do. That's why there's special revelation. Because knowing that God exists and that He's good, that's one thing. But understanding His nature, His character, and His will, that's another thing. And we don't understand that until God tells us. Special revelation is God's miraculous, specific 
revealing of Himself using words. All Scripture is God-breathed. Peter said, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that God, who in different times in various ways had spoken unto the fathers through the prophets, in these last days has spoken unto us through His Son. God has spoken. He has spoken inspiration. The the idea of 2 Peter 3 and verse 16 is that God breathed out these words. The, The words of the Bible, this revelation that we have came directly from God. He gave it. He said it. He is the origin of it. And if God revealed Himself to humanity... And if Scripture is that which God has breathed, then Scripture is divinely authoritative because it is the very Word of God. Revelation is the content of this book. Inspiration was the vehicle that got it to us. God moving along these writers as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. Revelation is the message that God has revealed. Inspiration is the means by which the message has been given to us. So if the word revelation emphasizes God's initiative in making himself known, and the word inspiration denotes the process that God employed, then authority indicates the result. And ladies and gentlemen, when God speaks and his nature and his will is revealed to us by him, we have the authoritative word of God. A disciple of Jesus needs to develop and cultivate the same attitude toward the Bible that Jesus had. If we are followers of Jesus, if we're trying to be like Jesus, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, then we need to think about Scripture the way that Jesus thought about Scripture. The first thing we need to understand is that Jesus said in his inaugural address in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to destroy Scripture. I came to fulfill it. This is what it's all about. When he was going to the cross, he said the same thing. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. Secondly, as you think about the attitude of Jesus towards Scripture... We're reminded that in the mind of Jesus, even the smallest part of Scripture is important because it is Scripture. Somebody said, well, you know, I like to study the Bible, but I just like to study the important part. Which part would that be? The part that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. That's the part. Because it's all important. Jesus said, I want to tell you, 
I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it. Not one jot or one tittle shall in any wise pass away until all has been fulfilled. The dotting of every I, we would say. The crossing of every T is important. In John the 10th chapter and verse 35, Jesus is going to make an argument about the resurrection based on a verb tense. God said, I am the God of Abraham. How can he say that if Abraham died? Because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. That's the point. One word, one verb tense is important to the Lord. Scripture cannot be broken. That was John 10 and verse 35. Matthew 22 and verse 32 The verb tense regarding Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. Jesus regarded Scripture as the Word of God. Well, one of the passages we read very often when we're studying about marriage is Matthew chapter 19. When the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, trying him, and they're going to ask him a question about divorce. And they said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause or every cause? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? He who made them from the beginning, who would that be? God. He's talking to Jews. They understood that. Who made them from the beginning? God. He who made them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife. Jesus said, God made them male and female from the beginning. And God said, for this cause, you go back and read Genesis 2 and verse 24. It doesn't say that. God said, and Jehovah said, and the word of the Lord. It doesn't say that. It's just the scripture there. It's just the scripture that's being written there. And what's the point? The point is in Genesis 2 and verse 24, Moses, who is writing the Pentateuch, is not giving us a direct quotation from God as it were. It's not recorded that way. It is recorded as the inspired word of God given through Moses. But Jesus said, when you read Scripture, what do you have? You have the word of God. It is as if God said this. And God said, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That was Scripture. And Jesus said, when you read it in the scripture, you're reading the word of the Lord. Four things I want to leave you with this morning. Number one, the Bible claims to be the very word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, either it is or it isn't. But we we need to get rid of this idea that you can sort of have it, but not not everything. You You don't have to have everything. No, the Bible's either the word of God or it's not. If it's not the word of God, then it's not. And we we need to stop making any claims about any part of it being special and authoritative. 
But if it is the word of God, then it is. And we need to respect it as such. The Bible makes the claim that it is the very word of God. The second point I want you to remember this morning is this. Jesus acknowledged in his ministry the authority of Scripture. How many times did Jesus say, It is written. When he was confronting Satan in the wilderness, he started out that way every time. Or Jesus would say, Have you not read, as he did in Matthew 19? Jesus acknowledged the authority of Scripture. And in the mind of Jesus, when you make the appeal to Scripture, you have gone to the bar. That's it right there. That's the answer. That's the authority. This is the final word on this. And so I'm saying to you this morning, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if we're going to be his disciples, we can't follow Jesus and reject the word of God. Thirdly, we need to understand that the God-breathed word is effective for those who both hear and do. Do you remember when Jesus got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? The illustration that he gave about a wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the point being made was this. Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and doeth them shall be likened to a man who built his house upon a rock. But those who hear these words of mine and go away straightway forgetting what they heard, they're like the man who built their house on the sand. I'm saying to you this morning, The inspired Word of God is effective in your life only to the extent that you embrace it. Not only with your mind and your ears, but your heart in your life and the choices that you make. And finally, the proper response for Timothy in the perilous times of these last days was this. Paul said, this is is what your culture is like. But as for you, Timothy, this is not who you are. You have learned from me, an apostle of Christ. You have known this from the beginning. Your grandmother and your mother taught you the Scripture. The Scripture is the God-breathed Word. And Timothy, in the times in which we're living, this is what you need to do. You need to preach the Word. Preach the word. It is the word of God. It is the truth. Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, lifted up his voice as he was praying for the unity and the safety and the care of his disciples. He prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what a wonderful time for you. In acknowledging in your heart the Word of God as being true, what a wonderful time for you to submit your life to the Lord.
to, to follow Him as He has called us. And, and to see Scripture as He saw it, the very Word of God. If you've never put on the Lord in baptism, you can do that this morning. And if you're a child of God who's not living faithfully to the Lord and you need to come back to Him, we beg you to do that while we stand and sing.